Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We all have uh, moments in life that, that mark off time in our lives. And I don't know what those events, what those dates are for you, but I feel pretty confident that you probably have them. I know in my own life, March 23rd, 2003 is a significant date because when I was baptized. And so that is an event that marks time. There was time before I was a follower of Jesus and there was time after. Uh, in February 2020, I agreed to move to Minnesota and come on staff here at this church. And that's an event from which I can mark time. Uh, there was life before I lived in Minnesota. There is life afterwards. I know um, that last uh, October, uh, I stood on this stage on October 1st, 2022, and I was married to Whitney. And that is a significant moment that marks time. There was life before I was married, and there is life afterwards. And I'm sure you have moments like that too. And that is true for individuals, and it's true for groups of people as well. It's true for a church. Uh, December 2018 was a significant moment for the congregation because, uh, because you moved from an old building into this building, and that's a moment from which you can mark time. And I've heard some of you do that in conversations. You'll be telling me some story, something that happened, and you'll say something like, well, I know it happened in the old building, so it must have happened somewhere around this time. That's because moving into this building marks time. There was life in previous buildings for this church, and there's life afterwards. And the same is true for nations as well. Uh, Something changed on July 4th, 1776, when the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. There was far more to the Revolutionary War, there was far more to our nation coming to be than just signing that one piece of paper, but something changed. Time was marked off of July 4th, 1776. There was life before the Declaration of Independence, and there was life afterwards. And sometimes that happens uh, for better or for worse. Uh, Those of us that were alive know that September 11th, 2001 was a day where everything changed. There was life in our nation before 9-11, and there was life afterwards, for better or worse. Uh, We all have those moments in life that mark time as individuals and as any group of people that we might be a part of. And the same is true when we read the Bible. When you read through scripture, especially when you read the Old Testament, you will find that one of the key moments for God's people that they always find themselves looking back to is the story of the Exodus. It is a moment for God's people from which time is marked. There was life before the Exodus and there was life afterwards. And something changed in that moment where God called his people into a new life with him. The Exodus is where God miraculously delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt and into life with him, bringing them towards this land that he had promised to give to their ancestor Abraham, demonstrating who he is, he called his people to be. 
And as you read through the Psalms and the prophets, you will find references back to the Exodus. You will find comments like, the God that delivered us out of Egypt can surely deliver us now, and things of that sort, because that's an event from which time is marked. And that is a moment that we don't always pay as much attention to as we should, as we read Scripture. Uh, But it's a key moment that we look back to, that we should see where God clearly and powerfully demonstrates who he is and how he calls his people to live, and that should inform how we live out who God calls us to be in our own lives as well. And so this series that we are starting today and that is going to take us up through Easter is reflecting on those themes that we find in the Exodus, these themes of God liberating his people, leading them, delivering them into life with him. If you were here, you might remember that uh, last year from roughly about April to August in the Sunday school class that met in this room, we worked through a study that was loosely based on this book that's called Echoes of Exodus. And uh, the point of that study last year was really to kind of lay the groundwork for this sermon series here. And if you were here for that study, I'm not telling, I don't say that to say that everything you heard then will be verbatim what you're going to hear throughout this sermon series. And if you weren't here for that study, I'm not telling you that you're going to be lost every single week because of, because of uh, that, that previous study. But because this is such an important theme in, in the story of Scripture, it felt like something that was important. Uh, it felt like something that was worth drilling in on and looking at closely, but also zooming out on and looking in broad themes for all of us uh, through this sermon series. And so we're kicking that series off today by looking at the story of the Exodus, this story that is the foundation for the rest of this series. And as this was coming together, as I was thinking about uh, this passage of scripture and this sermon series, just the more I looked at these chapters, the more it felt like this was less of a sermon and more of telling a story. And so that's the purpose for the chair and the coffee table up here on stage. We're covering 15 chapters of scripture this morning. I wanted to be comfortable because we're going to be here a while. No, we are covering 15 chapters of scripture, but that's not the purpose for this. Uh, because we're telling a story, in my mind, telling a story makes much more sense sitting down around a table than it does standing at a pulpit. And so I wanted, if you can use your imagination with me and picture that we're sitting in your living room or my living room and we're reflecting on this story together of God delivering his people out of slavery and into life with him. Because this is a story, we have to start not just with the story itself, but with a little bit of prologue because the story of Exodus actually begins with the end of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends with uh, Jacob's descendants living in the nation of Egypt. Jacob's sons, Joseph, uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers of some family dysfunction. He eventually ends up in prison in Egypt, and yet God works through that and elevates him to this position of being second in command of everything in the nation of Egypt. And so because of that, a famine strikes the land where the rest of his family is living. They all come down to Egypt with Joseph. There's reconciliation amongst this family. They're all living in Egypt in the same place together. And the book of Genesis ends in chapter 50 with a really happy ending. And the book of Exodus, the very next book in our scripture, picks up right where the leaves off. Exodus 1, verses 6 and 7 says that now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. 
They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And if we're reading the opening chapter of the book of Exodus with the book of Genesis in mind, there are some things from that that will probably get our attention. We might remember that in Genesis 1.28, God commands Adam and Eve, he commands humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And here, in the opening of the book of Exodus, uh, the text says that God's people are increasing and multiplying. They're doing the thing that God originally wanted humanity to do. Everything seems to be going great. As God intended, God's people are fulfilling God's purposes for them. And yet, if you remember the story of Genesis, you know God creates everything good and everything is set up exactly as God intended. And then the story progresses and a new character enters the scene, this shrewd serpent who unravels all the creation that God made. And the same thing happens again in the book of Exodus. This 1, 8 to 10 says that then a new king, a new pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Genesis chapter 3 says that this serpent, was, or this serpent, excuse me, was crafty. And this new pharaoh comes to power and says we must deal shrewdly with the Israelites. Because if we don't, they will take up arms against us and they will leave our land. And so because of this fear, pharaoh uh, saves the Israelites, forcing them to do hard labor. But not only that, he begins to put measures in place to slow down their population growth. Uh, he, he commands these two Hebrew midwives, their names are Shifra and Pua. He commands them that when an Israelite baby is born, if it is a boy, you need to let it die, and if it is a girl, let it live. And yet, in spite of that, uh, he continues to bless his people. These two Hebrew midwives, they are disobedient command, and through that, God blesses them, and by extension, blesses all of his people. Israelite boys are still being born. God's people continue to flourish. God continues to care for his people despite the, the schemes of Pharaoh because what we're going to see is that Pharaoh is not as in charge of things as he likes to think he is. In Pharaoh's world, he's the one at the top of the food chain. Everything happens how he wants, when he wants, in the way that he wants it. And yet, notice as you read through the book of Exodus, we're never given Pharaoh's name. Uh, we are given the name of these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, and yet the book of Exodus never tells us the name of Pharaoh. And that would, if we were given that name, that would make study of the book of Exodus much easier. It would be easier for scholars to kind of make sense of some of the history being told here. And yet the book of Exodus doesn't seem all that concerned about it. And it's ironic because uh, Pharaoh's at the top of the food chain in his world, and these Hebrew midwives, you think, are are at or near the bottom of the food chain of the world, and yet God in the book of Exodus is concerned about these two women, so much so that we're given their names. And the book of Exodus isn't concerned enough about Pharaoh to use who he is. God's concern for his people in spite of the scheme of Pharaoh. When these Two Hebrew midwives don't cooperate with Pharaoh's plans. He commands the, the Egyptians to simply put all Israelite boys to death. 
you find an Israelite boy, take him and throw him in the Nile River. Pharaoh is desperate. That's the setup for our story. In one corner of a king, Pharaoh desperate to hold on to his power however he can, even means committing genocide. And on the other side, you have the Israelites, and maybe more importantly, you have their God, who cares for them, who is working slowly but surely to bring them into life with him. Exodus chapter 2 tells us about the birth of an Israelite son. And this baby is put in the Nile River, as Pharaoh has just commanded. It's just that before he goes in the Nile River, his mother puts him in a bath that is covered in tar and pitch. And again, if we're reading the book of Exodus, thinking about the book of Genesis, we will remember the last time that something entered water covered with tar and pitch was Noah and his ark. God commanded Noah to build an ark, cover it with tar and pitch, so that he and his family could be delivered from death and into life with God. And now, Pharaoh's pl- or, uh, Moses excuse me, is placed in this basket by his mother, covered in tar and pitch, put in the Nile so that he delivered into God's purposes for him. Moses is an infant floating in the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, and he is adopted into the royal household, which again is ironic. Pharaoh has just issued an edict. Every Israelite boy should be put to death, and now his daughter is adopting an Israelite boy. Pharaoh can't even enforce his edict within his own household. He can't even get his daughter to follow this thing he's just told the entire nation to do. And yet God is at work. And Moses is adopted royal family. Mixed identity of part Israelite, part Egyptian. As he gets older, he goes out one day, he observes his fellow Israelites working, he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and so thinking he is doing the right thing, mur- uh, Moses murders this Egyptian while no one's looking. He thinks he's done something to really help the cause out the next day he finds two Israelites fighting with one another and he tries to intervene tries to break it up one of them says to him in Exodus 2 14 who made you ruler and judge over us are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian the text says then Moses was afraid and thought what I did must have become known he thought he was defending his fellow Israelites now he's wanted for murder so he flees into the wilderness assuming this is how he's going to spend the rest of his days and yet he is oblivious to how God is at work him and through all of his people to bring them into life with him. Moses settles into a quiet life as a shepherd in the land of Midian. His fellow Israelites continue to suffer under the oppression of Pharaoh. Yet God's not done. Moses is out working in the fields one day and tending his flocks and he discovers this bush that is on fire but is not being consumed by the fire. So he goes over to inspect it. And we're told in Exodus 3, verses 4 to 10, and the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. God called to him, called to Moses from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Not God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have heard the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians 
and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the Israelites has reached me, I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses might have thought he was going to be a shepherd the rest of his days. The Israelites might have thought they were just going to stay in slavery forever. But God has been working to deliver them into life with him. Moses isn't exactly thrilled with this plan. If you keep reading, he has all sorts of excuses as to why he's not the right man for the job. One of the key excuses he gives is that he doesn't even know the name of this God that is sending him. Moses says in Exodus 3.13, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God answers in the very next verse, declaring who he is. He says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. Am has sent me to you. This is who our God is. The one who always is. It would be inappropriate to refer to God in the past or future tense because he always is, always is fully perfect in every way. He is I am. This is the God that is sending Moses back to Egypt. He is not a detached, abstract being who doesn't really care. He's not a local deity that's only uh, powerful over one realm of life or one part of the world. He is I am, the eternal, perfect God of all things for all time. He is the one who is working to deliver his people into life with him. So Moses traveled back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, demanding that he release the Israelites so that they might be able to travel into the wilderness to worship. And Pharaoh is opposed to this idea, and so begins a series of plagues. And we won't walk through all of them this morning, but what we see through them is that God demonstrates time and time again that he is the one Israel and to Egypt both, that the gods of the Egyptians are not real gods, that God has more power and he rules over all things for all time. And you'll notice if you read through the first nine plagues that they're kind of in three groups of three and it kind of moves in a cycle with the first one, Moses and Aaron will go confront Pharaoh early in the morning, Pharaoh will let the people go and so they'll send a plague. The second time they will meet with Pharaoh in some way. Pharaoh will refuse to let the people go and so they'll send a plague. And then the third one, they will just send a plague. They won't meet with Pharaoh at all. And then that cycle will start happens three times. But the plagues also get progressively more intense. Early on, they're brief. They're kind of annoying, but they don't cause any major lasting damage. Pharaoh's unimpressed. His own magicians are able to replicate these plagues that Moses and his brother Aaron are sending on the land. But then things start to amp up. The magicians aren't able to replicate what is happening anymore. And things begin to narrow in focus. They don't affect everyone anymore. They begin to just affect options. But Pharaoh still refuses to give in to Moses' demands. The the plagues begin to destroy animals and crops. Pharaoh continues to refuse to let the people go, even against the advice of his top advisor. 
that points, it becomes clear that this is not a string of coincidences. This is not a run of bad luck. This is a showdown between the gods of Egypt and the one true God who is the God of Israel. And it will demonstrate once and for all that he is the one true God who rules over all things. And we see that clearly with this phrase that gets repeated multiple times throughout the narrative. God will say that he is going to do something and he says that he's going to do it so that you will know who I am, that you will know that I am the Lord. God is not doing this because the Israelites asked him really nicely. He's not acting for Israel. He's acting for himself. He is acting so that the entire world, for all time, would know that there is one true God and he is the God of Israel. I am. This culminates with plague where all the firstborn of every family and all the firstborn livestock die in gives his people this meal called Passover and he instructs them to eat it he instructs them that as a part of it to put the blood of the lamb that they slaughter some of it on their doorpost to signify their trust in God and those that put the blood on their doorposts will not have death enter their house on that night don't will experience this plague God deliverance through it and as he does that, he gives his people a new identity. They're no longer slaves. They are his people set free for life with him. From this time forward, God's people mark time from the moment where he freed them from slavery in Egypt. They are to be a people that has at the very core of their identity the fact that their God has delivered them out of bondage and into life with him. In Exodus 12, verses 1 and 32, after this final plague of the firstborn has happened, we are told that during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Oh, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go and also bless me. This deliverance has finally happened. It's finally come, and yet it has not come quite in a way that was quick and easy. If we jump down to verse 40, we get this little comment that the length of time Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. 30 years of waiting, of wondering what is happening, of of asking if God cares, if God is still paying attention, if he knows what we are going through, and yet he has been at work through it all so that they might be set free. And we might think that would be the end of the story. It would be a happy ending for God's people at that point if it was. But not long after the Israelites get out of town, Pharaoh realizes he has made a mistake. I mean, he's just let his labor force walk out the door. And he gets word that the people might be vulnerable. Uh, When the people first leave Egypt, when the Israelites leave town, they kind of go in this south-southeast direction, and then kind of out of nowhere, God them turn and go in a different direction and Pharaoh gets word of this and he seems to think that maybe they're confused maybe they're lost maybe they're holding the map upside down I don't know maybe this God they worship isn't as powerful outside of Egypt as he was inside Egypt maybe they're vulnerable maybe I can go capture them and bring them back and I can have all this free labor again so Pharaoh and armies take off the Israelites and they when they catch up to them they are right next to makes the people of Israel nervous, as you could easily imagine. It's not literally between a rock and a hard place, but it's pretty close to it. 
In Exodus 14, starting in verse 10, the text says that as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. How quickly they have forgotten all that God did throughout plagues to bring them to the point where they are now. As they look at Pharaoh's army barreling to them, assume there's no hope, all is lost, they're trapped, they've got a sea on one side, an army marching towards them on the other. Yet, it's not done working. Moses responds to the people in chapter 14, in verses 13 and 14, Moses answers the people, afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Immediately after this, God sends his people forward in the most unlikely of ways. Moses raises his staff, the waters of the sea part, and God's people walk through it on dry ground. They pass through the water. Pharaoh's army, when they see this happening, they think this is as good a route for us as it is for them. Let's just take off after them. They take off into the sea as well. As soon as God's people get out of the water, it closes back in and swallows Pharaoh's army. The liberation God had promised. 430 years in the making has finally happened. The oppression of Pharaoh is over. God's people are free. And the account ends with Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put in him and in Moses his servant. people from slavery so they might have life with him, knowing that he is the one true God, trusting in him above all else. And yet we get one last scene in the story. This incredible display of power and might in chapter 14, we're given a song in chapter 15 that the Israelites sing, praise God for what he's done. And we the entire song this morning, although I'd encourage you to do that this week. I'd encourage you to read all of Exodus 1 to 15 this week to sit down and see how God works throughout this narrative. But if you were to sit down and read this song, my guess is that it would not be exactly what you would expect, or at least it's not what I would be singing if I was in there. The first thing you might notice is that there is very little in it about the Israelites. The song is about 18 verses long, and you get to about verse before you hear the Israelites at all name. Instead, as you read through this song, you will see that the main character is God. And the main is what he has done to demonstrate that he rules over all things for all time. And just in case we've missed it up to this point in the story, we should catch the point now that the main character of this story has been and will always be God himself. 
This is not a story about the Israelites. This is not a story about Moses. This is not a story about the Egyptians. This is a story about God. I am working through Moses straight to his people and to the world that he is the one true God who liberate his people into life with him. He's the one who liberates. And as he does that, his people respond with worship contributes nothing throughout this story they simply step into what god is doing for them trust in his work and respond to that work with worship praising god for who he is what he's done and for what he promised that he will do and i say all of that everything i've said on this stage up to up to this point this morning i say all of that to say this point that the story of the exodus is our story The story of the Exodus is a story of God fulfilling his promises, of God liberating his people so that they might be free for life with him. And as God, all of that about, his people are called to step into that life with him, a life that responds to what he has done with worship, proclaiming who he is and trusting in him and him alone. And all of this should sound familiar because it is our story in Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that we might be set from the oppression of sin and death. God leads his people into freedom through the waters of baptism where sin and death are defeated for all time. He to step into this life with him to respond to what he has done with every part of who we are with our worship so that we might have the life with him that we were created to have. This is the life God desires for each and every one of us. A life that has been liberated. And simple, if you keep reading the story of the Israelites, it is far from simple. But it is the life that God invites us into. So if you're struggling under the oppression and death, oh, that God desires to liberate you. God desires to liberate you into life with him. If you have passed through those waters, if you've entered into life with him, know what he has done for you so that you could have that life and step into that by responding with worship. Whoever you are, step into that life with God. Be liberated from the powers oppressing us be liberated from sin and death so that you might have life with God, the life you were created to live. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who liberates us. That when we had rebelled against you and gotten ourselves enslaved in the process, that you did not leave us in our punishment, but you sent your Son so that we might have life with you that you have set us free so that we might have hope for the future and life in the present. God, ask that you help us to step into a life that has been liberated, whatever that means. If that means passing through the waters of baptism for the first time, if that means just simply reminding ourselves of who God is, what we've committed to in the past, responding with worship in the present, God, give us 
eyes to see what you're doing. Respond in faith. Be with us as we continue in our worship. Meet us where we are. So we spend a life with you. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.